This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. Hello, Ben here. I record these episodes on a Monday night Zoom call, and this week I had a great idea. I'd play a song live and have everyone unmute their microphones so we could get some laughter on the recording. Turns out, this is a complete misunderstanding of Zoom, air conditioning, coughing, and dogs. So this will just be my side of the recording. The song is from the perspective of Jay Gatsby of The Great Gatsby, and he also had a great idea. To win the heart of the love of his youth, Daisy Buchanan. It also didn't work out. This is Funny Beliefs. Oh, Daisy. I did everything right. I changed my name from Gats to Gatsby. Should I have changed it to Jones or Smith? Or Fitzgerald or Buchanan Is that why you married Tom? Oh, Daisy Did you see my big house? Bought with my own bootlegging money parties with truckloads of lemons and oranges if it had been kiwi would you be in my arms oh i'm friends with nick he is your favorite cousin he's your favorite second cousin once Just me and you and Nick. Oh, and then I threw my shirts at you, just a whole closet of shirts. And if that doesn't say leave your family, I don't know what does. Oh, oh. Humor is steeped in belief. How we see the world shapes our jokes and jokes shape how we see the world. I'm Ben Fort, and I've spent years creating comedy and practicing the Christian faith. These two worlds have different languages, and this mini-series is a place where they can talk. Whether you're a Christian, a comic, or both, let's explore where humor connects to your funny beliefs.
mistakes. If you look your husband in the eye and say you never loved him, and do this in front of your friends in a wicked hot apartment, then you'll be my daisy, my daisy Gatsby, or Daisy Jones. Today's episode is about the work of comedy, which is weird because great humor feels effortless. Your favorite stand-up feels like they're just joking with their buddies. They're just funny. Like my friend Wade. We performed sketch comedy together at Oklahoma Baptist University. Yes, the famous comedy institution. And when Wade walked out on stage, people would just laugh. It didn't matter if it was your first time to see him or your 10th. He was just funny. During one rehearsal, he had a question about the script, and I couldn't pay attention to what he was saying because all I could see were his pencil markings. There were underlines, circled words, even questions. Every gesture, reaction, and delivery was deliberate. And that script, those words he circled, had been carefully chosen over multiple stages of brainstorming and rewriting. Behind his laughs was work. And that's true of professional comedy. More true. In Key and Peele's third season, their staff wrote 330 scripts in order to produce 83 sketches. That joke that you love on a stand-up special? They've said it at least a dozen times, playing with the phrasing and delivery. Even improvised comedy takes years of practice and retraining your brain to be able to just make things up. But we don't see all that work. We just see funny. As a performer, I didn't get the same laughs as Wade. I could get a laugh, but conditions had to be perfect. A well-written script that aligned with my strengths. Give me an okay script or let me play against type and I get golf claps. Wade, however, could take bad material, and some of it was really bad, and find a way to make it funny. And I could write. My college skit auditions were a C-plus performance with an A-minus script, and B auditions were good enough for OBU talent shows. Wade's B came from C scripts and A performances. We both wrote and performed for four years, and patterns emerged. Scenes starring Wade tended to do well, and scenes written by me tended to do well. That's the work of comedy, testing and paying attention to the response. Wade and I learned that we enjoyed this work. Nobody made him mark up his scripts. He wasn't even a theater major, it just seemed right. Nobody made me write scripts in sociology class while nodding and acting like I was taking notes. No one made me rewrite. I was driven to make scenes as strong as possible. Which is weird, because academic papers never came easy or before 6 a.m. But scripts were a joy. We didn't want to stop, and so after graduation, we packed our belongings in a 90s Mazda and headed for Chicago to take classes at Second City. Wade, the performer, would take improv classes, and I would take writing classes. 
At OBU, I began my journey as a creator of comedy. But it wasn't until Chicago that I learned what it looks like to cultivate comedy. Those two terms, creating and cultivating, are from writer Andy Crouch in his wonderful book, Culture Making. In it, he wonders what Christians are known for when it comes to culture, asking, are we known as critics, consumers, copiers, condemners of culture? I'm afraid so. He continues, why aren't we known as creators, people who dare to think and do something that has never been thought or done before? Something that makes the world more welcoming and thrilling and beautiful? Why aren't we known as cultivators, people who tend and nourish what is best in human culture, who do the hard and painstaking work to preserve the best of what people before us have done? Creators and cultivators, jokers and laughers, when it comes to humor, we all do both. You create humor. You may never take an improv class, but you tell funny stories. Something weird happens to you, and you tell a friend. They think it's funny. So you try it on another friend, and start to sense which details matter, which ones don't, which part gets a reaction. The story morphs, and you stretch out the good parts and cut down on the filler. You test it with different circles to find out if it's family funny or work funny. Most of our stories don't last long. They stick in the rotation for a few days, maybe a few weeks, and then drop off. It's not a big deal, you just don't tell that story anymore. But every once in a while, it's a great story. It gets a big reaction right away. Every time you tell it, it's gold. But you're still adapting, stretching, shrinking, working. People ask to hear it again. Ooh, tell me the one about hide and seek. Or you don't need to be asked. You find yourself in a group that's having a good time, and somehow hide-and-seek comes up. It's go time. That's the work of testing, the work of comedy. We were creating comedy at OBU, but there were limits. We didn't have training. We just learned by doing, picking up tricks from people with slightly more experience. And even though we wrote dozens of sketches together, we didn't have a great way of talking about the work. Joking is vulnerable, and bringing a pitch or a first draft is no different. We didn't have a vocabulary, or method, really, and the life of an idea was often subject to the whims of the group. I'm a natural people pleaser, and I felt bad for being critical of scenes and frustrated when I kept quiet. I felt limited and wanted a better way. I needed cultivators, and I found them at Second City. Like Oklahoma Baptist University, the Second City is a comedy institution. Founded in Chicago in 1959, it's famous for alumni like Tina Fey, Stephen Colbert, and Keegan-Michael Key. Second City's professional shows are considered must-see in Chicago and Toronto, and they offer classes in improv, stand-up, and comedy writing. People ask how I got in. It was pretty complex. I registered for a class and gave them my money. That's simplified, of course, but I don't need to go into the specifics of creating a login. There are parts of Second City that require an audition, but for the year-long writing program, I just had to show up to level one. I got what I came for. 
the vocabulary I was craving. In my first eight-week class, I learned the basic structure of a comedy sketch. You start in the realm of the normal, then something unusual happens, taking us to the world of the comic. Things heighten and heighten till they can heighten no more, and someone in this silly world offers a solution, which will then be accepted or rejected. For example, the Gatsby song I just played. It starts in the world of the normal, a straightforward song in the genre of What Happened, Baby? Oh, Daisy, I did everything right. Nothing weird until he says what he did right. I changed my name from Gats to Gatsby. And he also says what went wrong. Should I have changed it to Jones? Now we're in the world of the comic. Gatsby's great ideas were in fact terrible ideas, and he has no idea. It keeps heightening, with his guesses getting increasingly worse. If it had been Kiwi, would you be in my arms? Should I have called him Buddy, and then I threw my shirts at you? The ridiculousness climaxes. If that doesn't say leave your family, I don't know what does. And then we have a glimmer of reason. Oh, Daisy, I'll admit I made mistakes. Maybe he understands. If you look your husband in the eye and say you never loved him. Not yet, but I'm sure things will work out for him. Not every sketch follows this format, but like verse, verse, chorus, verse, bridge, chorus is classic for a reason and great for troubleshooting scenes. As students, once we learned that structure, our teacher could say, you haven't established your who, what, and where, or get to the conflict quicker, or this scene has two games, pick one. And we knew what they were talking about. Eventually, we could give these structural notes to each other. This is part of cultivation, handing down the vocabulary and structure of your art form. My teachers handed it to me. Now I'm a teacher, and I hand it to my own students. But there's only so much feedback students can give each other. My Chicago teachers brought wisdom and imagination to our scenes based on years of writing, performing, directing, and producing sketch comedy for the stage. One week, I brought an old college scene where Peter Pan confesses his love to Wendy. Behind them, we see their shadows play out their true feelings. The biggest laugh came when Wendy says, it's not you, it's Shmi. It's not you, it's Shmi, which is really hard to say clearly, but it worked because everyone had a script in their hands. And I felt really good about myself until my teacher said, that line is really funny and you need to cut it. You have an honest scene here and it can't take the weight of that joke. There's nowhere to go after that. What? Why would you cut your biggest laugh? I received his suggestion and spent my next few drafts trying to prove him wrong. I could not, so I set the scene aside. For my next class, because that teacher would understand my punny genius, he did not. 
Every field has this kind of practical earned wisdom. My dad just retired as a career Methodist pastor, and he knows the scope of a 25-minute sermon and a shorter message on Communion Sunday. My wife, Bethany, is a children's librarian and knows the difference between a toddler story time and a pre-K story time, and what kind of picture book you can hand a firefighter and they can read like a true hero. I cut jokes, Dad cuts a good point, and Bethany cuts chicka-chicka-boom-boom. Back in Oklahoma, there were a couple of months where I thought, should we even go to Chicago? I mean, we were really college good. Maybe we could perform as a troupe at churches and regional colleges. I'm grateful we didn't because we would have cut ourselves off from the wisdom and imagination of experienced teachers and from getting to see so much live comedy on stage. Comedy cities like Chicago have incredible shows like TJ and Dave and Improvised Shakespeare. The lines between comedy and theater blur and shows like Too Much Light Makes the Baby Go Blind made you giggle, think, and cry. These amazing shows taught me what was possible. I also saw terrible shows and they taught me what to avoid. The okay shows kept me humble because they looked a lot like something I would try. To take inspiration from the good, caution from the not so good, this is cultivation. You cultivate humor. You do it every time you laugh at a joke, retweet a silly video, give a Facebook post the old haha, or when you tell someone, oh, you have to check out this show, or say, I love Linda, she's so funny. You see something good, and through laughs, compliments, or sharing, you're affirming to whoever created or shared this that yes, this is funny, and you're letting others know they should pay attention. We joke and laugh, and we're also shaped by others' jokes and laughs. There's this new thing called the internet, and it's full of attempted humor. Like Chicago, it's got some excellent inspired treasure and a whole lot of trash presented as treasure. Some of it is our friend's creation, some of it is our friend's cultivation, and it is entirely too much. You find yourself scrolling stone-faced, thinking, yes, that's funny, posting your cry-laugh emoji without a smile. Your humor is also being cultivated. It started with your family, where y'all joked about some things and not other things. Some of this was taste, and some of it was moral. The rules may not have been stated, but you knew when you crossed a line. In the workplace, the rules are explicitly stated, and Randy doesn't know when he's crossed a line. The internet has no HR department, but it does have Twitter mobs, and these forces all shape us. I sometimes feel weird teaching because I don't have all the success of my Second City teachers but I do have my share of failures. Looking back, that's where a lot of their wisdom came from. At one point, they were a comedy student. Their teacher told them, cut your pirate pun, it's killing the scene. They didn't. It backfired. They've written and performed bad comedy and want to spare us. Because there's really nothing worse than a failed joke. That's not true. A whole train of them is worse. Because there's one proper response to humor, laughter, and the lack of it is deafening, embarrassing, 
This makes creating humor a risk. The gift of comedians is giving us safe places to play without the risk. They give us new categories and names for things, and now we can confidently joke about those things ourselves. Fans of the show Seinfeld don't just love it because they can quote it to each other. They love it for the glasses they now have, a different way of seeing and interpreting the world. To see safe play in action, look at the Twitter replies and Facebook comments for an online satire site like The Onion or Babylon Bee. It's mostly people adding their new jokes to the article. They didn't stick out their necks to create this thing, but now they can play, get their own likes and emojis. And it's not a risk because the funny has already been established. Online memes are also a safe place to play where you can take this joke that's going around, give it a new subject, and get some laughs. We do it in real life, when we quote movies or have an inside joke with friends. People can connect, get involved. It's a gift. And it's a curse. Humor can make it safe and easy to joke about people or groups of people who look or think different than us, to make someone other and keep it that way. We can all think of a time when someone made a joke about us that was unfair, insensitive, or just cruel. Maybe followed by, I'm kidding, or a call to lighten up. Maybe others joined in the laughter, bonding together at your expense. And over time, if these jokes or stories refuse to die, they can shape the way others see you, not as a person, but as a bad sitcom character. It doesn't have to be directed at you personally to be painful. When people joke about your gender, race, sexuality, religious beliefs, physical appearance, disability, income level, or accent, it gives people new glasses for seeing you, permission to turn you into a bad sitcom character without ever having met you. Last year, comedian Sean Gillis was cast on Saturday Night Live. A few days later, he was fired, when it surfaced that he had used racist slurs and stereotypes on his podcast. He apologized with a classic non-apology, which includes this gem. My intention is never to hurt anyone, but I am trying to be the best comedian I can be, and sometimes that requires risks. Humor does require risk, but this incident did not. Gillis was playing in a safe sandbox in categories that were established decades ago. His co-host, his audience of one, was eating it up. They've joked like this before. And his friend's laughter, cast out into the internet, told their listeners, this right here is a good place to play. It matters what the safe places are. It matters what jokes and targets flourish in which ones die off, what we consider flowers and what we consider weeds. We should take the targets of humor seriously. But our basic posture shouldn't change. Creating humor requires a posture of humility. Whether you're testing material in a writer's room or in front of an audience, you need an openness to the response. If a trusted friend says, Hey, this joke isn't working. You need to listen. In my experience as a teacher, 
Humility is the only pre- prerequisite for succeeding in comedy. That doesn't mean you will be funny, but if you've decided you have nothing to learn from teachers, directors, and audiences, you have a very low ceiling. Cultivating humor requires a posture of generosity. To really try and see what someone's going for, and only then evaluating where it succeeds and where it falls short. We should keep these same postures of humility and generosity when it comes to the targets of humor. If you make a joke and a trusted cultivator says it plays into harmful stereotypes, you humbly consider it and go back to work, testing different setups and angles. If you hear a joke and the target seems off, a cultivator's first response should be to ask, what were they trying to do? What did they think the target was? And when a joke is humbly made and critique is generously offered, you'll find that a lot of people don't want to be sexist or racist. And yes, there are trolls and provocateurs. They're very loud, but we can't let them change our basic posture. Because great humor doesn't come from people saying, this isn't funny, or do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. It comes from generous cultivators seeing good, laughing, and saying, I see it. You're on to something. Here's where it's special, and here's where it might be falling short of what you're going for. Cultivators like those behind the American version of The Office. Today is the most streamed show on Netflix, in such a cultural force that we think, of course it's funny. Its success was inevitable. False. It started with British creators, Ricky Gervais and Stephen Merchant, when they developed the original British office with cultivators at BBC. Cultivators at NBC said, There's something here, and we see something in Greg Daniels that makes us think he can develop this. Daniels had been creating and cultivating comedy for 18 years as he worked on Saturday Night Live, The Simpsons, and King of the Hill. Daniels then saw something in each of the writers, who all once had teachers at a comedy theater or a screenwriting class, and continued to hone their craft and voice on other shows. He saw something in each performer, like Steve Carell, who started comedy at Denison University with an improv group called Burpee's Seedy Theatrical Company, which I'm sure was really college good. Carell went on to Second City, eventually performing as Stephen Colbert's understudy, and continued creating and cultivating at the short-lived Dana Carvey show and as a correspondent for The Daily Show. He was established as funny, but Daniels saw something that said he could be my leading man. The U.S. pilot was a copy of the BBC pilot, taking the same plant and placing it in American soil. The first season had mixed reviews, with cultivating critics saying, this isn't working, and the writers moved past the British version and wrote for the actors they had, finding that place between their own voice and what they saw in each of the actors. The actors did the same with the scripts. Critics saw something special forming. But it still needed an audience. 
January 2006. I was in an airport headed to Lisbon, Portugal with 20 college students. Tyler had an iPod video. My friends were huddled around this tiny screen, a couple of them with hands over their mouths. It looked like they were watching graphic footage of a car wreck, except with some uncomfortable laughs eking out. It was horror, but a different kind. Michael Scott knocking over warehouse shelves with a forklift. I did not immediately love it. It was awkward, cringy, and different than what I was used to. But Tyler laughed, and Wade laughed. I began to see what they were seeing. We got back from the trip and started watching it together on Tuesday nights, laughing at Michael and Dwight, sighing for Jim and Pam. People joined us, wanting to see what we were seeing, to the point where schedule conflicts kept us from watching it live. We taped it on VHS, with multiple people reminding the taper of her sacred duty. We weren't alone. Cultivators across the country saw, laughed, and shared. And the office became the office. And its success created new comedy, with Parks and Rec starting as an office spinoff created by Greg Daniels and office writer Michael Schur. Its first season also got bad reviews, but through careful creation and cultivation, it became Parks and Rec. The Office was a comedy supernova birthing new shows and stars. But no career was born with The Office. These talented people were already creating and cultivating. They kept doing it at The Office and have done it ever since. You and I are unlikely to be involved in something like The Office, but we can shape the laughter and playful spaces of our homes, friends, and workplaces. It's hard work, a lot of trial and error, and impossible to do alone. But with practice, it gets easier, and slowly you become a person who encounters a funny idea, story, or new way to play with your niece, and you're someone who can see it, enjoy it, shape it, and share it. I'm giving you homework this week. Practice cultivating. Tell your funny friend why you think they're funny. And be specific. If you have any thoughts about the show, uh, you can tell me. I'm on Twitter at BenFortWorth, like my name and my city. And you can use the hashtag FunnyBeliefs. If you're listening during the run of the show, I record each episode on a Zoom call Mondays at 8 Central, and afterwards we get to talk about it with each other. If you want in, hit me up on Twitter and I'll send you an invite. We'll also talk about it in the Christ and Pop Culture Members Forum on Facebook, which I've been part of since 2015. Some of my favorite friends are people I've met in the group, so if you need friends, you can have them for just $5 a month. And as a bonus, you'll support thoughtful writing and podcasts like this one. Funny Beliefs was written and recorded by me, Ben Fort. It was produced by Jonathan Clausen, art by Seth Haney, music by me. I have small children, and this was recorded at Leaves Book and Tea Shop in Fort Worth. Thanks, Tina. And thank you, Aaron and Tyler, my CAPC editors who made this happen. And to you for listening. You're pretty cool.
This episode was brought to you in part by the Truce Podcast. The new season examines the connection between some evangelicals and the Republican Party with the help of world-class historians. Subscribe to Truce in your podcast app or listen at trucepodcast.com.